0: AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: Hello, welcome to ATT Threat Track for October 26, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by a special guest, Ed Scudis, and uh, you are an instructor at SANS. That's right. And uh, also a uh, founder of CounterHack. That's
2: correct, yeah. So tell us a little bit about. I guess both those roles. Sure, sure. So at SANS, uh, I'm a curriculum lead for our offensive curriculum. So that's penetration cool. testing. Right. Uh, I'm the author of a couple of classes on that, teaching people how to provide business value while they're, they're hacking in mm-hmm. and helping organizations improve their security. So, so that's what I do with the SANS Institute. Right. Uh, I have an organization called CounterHack, which is me and a team of about 10 people. And our focus is on doing some penetration testing. But more important, our charter is dealing with creating simulations or cyber ranges. So we built a thing called Net Wars uh, for people to kind of experience, you know, attack and defense all together. Built a thing called Cyber City, which is a physical city, small, it's miniature, eight right. feet by ten feet, and people go through that as a cyber range. We do a bunch of other stuff. We do a thing called Cyber Aces for for high school kids. Cyber Quests we do for college students. So all that stuff is is created by Counterhack and. Mm-hmm and then sans distributes it out to folks
1: that's very cool so are you going to license any of this to like a call of cyber duty cyber duty, there you go <laughs> maybe.
2: we'll see i'll return their calls I mean, that, if they, I,
1: that really will be sort of the panacea when we get an entertainment activity around yeah. the notion of you know attacking and defending that's i mean that's that's
2: kind of where we're going uh yeah. you know with this stuff it's called gamification right this idea right. of can we play games to build skills that are actually useful? Mm-hmm. And, and cyber is like the ultimate place to do gamification. And we're we're trying to push the envelope on that with stuff like right. Cyber City. So you got the physical city, but also with uh, some of the stuff that we're putting together for our holiday hack challenge. Mm-hmm. It is going to, in a lot of ways, feel very much like a game, but at the same time have real skills in it. Very it's good. Cool.
1: So we'll get to talk a little bit more about red teaming and yeah. and the uh, the holiday hack as well sure, later sure. on here. So. Glad to have you with us. Thanks for coming. Glad to be here. Thank you. We have Matt Kaiser here today. Matt, you're familiar to us. I certainly (laughs) am. How's it going? Welcome. Good to have you here. And John Hogaboom. Yep. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, let's uh, first go to you, Matt, and uh, talk a little bit about the um, network time protocol. And uh, somebody's found a few little NIST
0: you know, niches and twits, twists in there. Am I stumbling upon myself today? What, no, I ahead. think you've got it right. It's, it's, <laughs> it's actually a collection of related and interesting manipulations of NTP that right. uh, you can use to seriously affect other systems. The attacks are in NTP, but the repercussions for the attacks sort of spider across any protocol that relies on NTP syncing to mm-hmm. get accurate time. So things like HTTPS, where you've got timestamps involved and you know, a server will say, well, wait a second, you're sending me data that's three months old, it'll start rejecting it. You can effectively have a denial of service in that case. Mm-hmm. So the attacks here are to shift time forward or back by manipulating the, the messages coming out and coming in to NTP servers and clients. Right. So this is a research at a Boston university, really cool paper, kind of deep and technical. It actually runs you through a bit of how NTP works before it dives into how to break NTP. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're up for it, I recommend it's a really good read. So the idea is to basically spoof messages between the NTP server. They have some attacks that are done in line, assuming mm-hmm. that you have the ability to, you know, watch the traffic and then modify your, your traffic to sort of pretend to be that. So-called man-in-the-middle approach. Not quite man-in-the-middle, but man-on-the-side with a view in. Oh, okay. Uh, but then there's also offline attacks, which are not off the network, but rather sort of independent of any knowledge of what's actually going on. You can send these attacks blindly to affect the servers. Mm-hmm. There's some interesting things in NTP that are sort of built to prevent sort of strange and aberrant changes in time. You know, if an NTP server says, hey, your time should be seven weeks in the future, the NTP server actually has something called the the panic threshold, which says, that's crazy, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out if, you, if you're able to, you know, because you're using UDP, there's no session involved. If you can fake those, those, those time deltas, sort of shuffle back and forth and say, a couple minutes in the future, a few back, a couple minutes in the future, a few back, you can eventually get to where you want that server to be. Right. So, that's what the first bypass that they talked about. It's pretty clever. One of the more interesting ones is apparently, um, on reboot, certain systems using NTP will just blindly accept whatever update they get next. Assuming, for example, that your data center's been down hard for like a week and it really needs to have accurate time, it's going to trust whatever it gets. Mm-hmm. So, if you can force a reboot and you can, you know, if you Reasonably believe that, that server is going to behave in that fashion, you can give it an update that's crazy, and it'll mm-hmm. say, sure, what do I know? The one that's sort of interesting for you know out-of-out-of-band attack is the kiss of death, which is a function within NTP. Mm-hmm. And the kiss of death is basically if someone keeps asking an NTP server what's the time, what's the time, what's the time, eventually it's going to say, cut it out. <laughs> and that's what the kiss of death is for. It's that's the cut it out packet that says, Don't ask me again for X number of time. Mm-hmm. And the thing about that is you can use that to deny service by saying, you know, your server just told you, cut it out. And it goes, okay. And it just <laughs> waits until that, and you can define the time in, that, in that, that cut it out period. You can make it go on for a very long time. Wow. Or you can do it from both directions. You can either have, you can fake the server saying back to the client, cut it out. Or you can fake requests as the client to the server and the server will respond back saying, cut it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a lot in this paper. Um, one more that I want to really cover is pinning to bad timekeepers, which I thought was kind of interesting most NTP servers won't just sync to one server. You know, if it fails over, they've got to go somewhere else. So if they've got a long list of servers, if there's a server in there that's really not up to snuff, if it's not as accurate as the others, and you can force that sort of, like we said with the kiss of death, we can say, don't talk to all these servers. They start talking to a bad server, you've effectively poisoned that server as well. Mm-hmm. They did a survey of the internet to sort of say, how many of these these are, are basically bad, poison-worthy servers that you could use in an attack, and mm-hmm. if you can get somebody to talk to it, you're basically attacking them in that way. So I know I've said a lot, but I'm, I was kind of excited about this work. I thought it was yeah. pretty neat. Are there any cryptographic controls that can be overlaid on top of NTP
1: so that you can have a, have a trust source? Has anybody done that work
0: yet? I believe there yeah. are ways to do that.
1: NTP sec. Yeah.
3: NTP sec.
0: <laughs> well, there, there's something to that effect, I think. Um, but the, 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 the truth is the vast majority of people don't right. support it, servers or clients. Right. Um, and you've, you've got some sort of key management that has to occur in order for that to work out. So I, I don't think it's going to be easy for people to roll out as a fix. Yeah. I think basically looking for these sorts of, taking a look at your NTP log and seeing what sorts of changes are being made over time, mm-hmm. trying to look for you know, some sort of anomalies, is probably the best way to go right. other than patching. Um, I would recommend you take a look at what servers you're syncing to and who's in your list of servers. Mm-hmm. Because if you have, like we said, those, those bad time servers in your list, it's probably time to start culling them out of there and ensure that even if you fail over, you're going to fail to something you can trust.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, very
3: good point. You uh, know, I think that... I was going to say, I also wonder, couldn't they just... You know, it's not like you have to NTP as much as you do with other protocols where you really need UDP. You could move to TCP. Not that that's a that's big true. change. To it's the a protocol. big change. Yeah. However, you know, like DNS, you wouldn't necessarily want to move to TCP because you're making lots yeah, of DNS queries yeah. for performance. But NTP, you do it once or a couple of times mm-hmm. a day or something, probably on each machine. So I don't know. That's a good
1: point. You know, I think um, I, I've kind of taken it for granted, you know, being in the telecommunications industry, it's actually not as important as it used to be, but it used to be that time references were like absolutely critical. And the entire network was synchronized, you know, the the sonnet rings, they all had to be on a very precise and equal time source. And so timing engineering was actually a fundamental discipline in the telecommunications industry. And I think that's relaxed a little bit, but that's still a fundamental part of what we do when we engineer a data center, is engineer the time references for the data center. And that's, I think, a very important aspect of this, is not just consider who you're going to connect to, but consider at a system level what your time reference is and so that you have security as an aspect of that, yeah. of that I, design.
2: I think, I think that gets into a, a, a big aspect of this. Um, first of all, the UDP aspect of it, so the inherently easy spoofing. But this mm-hmm. is some really cool research from the perspective of critical infrastructure protocols. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. mean, we saw, you know, Dan Kaminsky several years ago do do his work with uh, DNS. Mm -hmm. We saw 2014, the the problems with Heartbleed and SSL. We also saw a whole bunch of problems with TLS. I get really interested when there's these internet-wide critical protocols and people start finding flaws in them. Finally, paying
1: attention. Yeah, it's it's a good thing, and people
2: are paying attention yeah. to it, and in trying to comb through these protocols, trying to find some subtleties. And this right. research is is good work in that regard. Yeah. It also makes you kind of think out loud about you know what other protocols haven't gotten the scrutiny that mm-hmm. needed. I mean, NTP is critical, but what else is there that we've kind of forgotten about or thought, oh, they fixed that back in two thousand five, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's yeah, a very lot of work point. to be done. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I, I mean, just the fact that. I think we're all sort of security experts here and we're kind of scratching our head on what cryptographic methods might be available for being able to verify that you're actually getting your time from a from a trusted reference source. That is indicative of the fact that more attention needs to be paid to these critical infrastructure protocols and making sure that they're available. I know, you know, for routing protocols, there's sort of the MD- MD5 signing that mm-hmm. you can put on it, and, yeah. but it's all, it's not all that frequently used, and it, right. there need to be more more things like that. We, I don't know if we talked about on this program BGP sec, but that's yet another. You know, that's been one of the challenge areas of uh, you know, trying to get some security capabilities on top of the protocol. So right. we mm-hmm. need to continue to keep pushing that. So very good story on a number of levels here. And I, you know, I took it to the data center level, you took it <laughs> to, the, to the whole world level. So thank you for doing
2: stuff.
0: that.
1: Yeah, so let's go to you and talk a little bit about penetration testing, red teaming. First sure. of all, explain to us, where did the red team term come from and what sure. does that mean so, to So
2: I mean, you hear the, the, the word red team used a lot uh, historically in military. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of propagated to to some of the government organizations and now there's commercial organizations that are doing red team. The the whole offensive side has kind of gone that way. Mm -hmm. I remember back in the day when penetration testing, at least what we call it now, penetration testing was just done by mill folks or gov Mm -hmm. folks. And, and back in those days, I used to work on the phone network myself, and we started to do some penetration testing against uh, phone environments. It was very mm-hmm. exciting. That's how I got my career started. Good. So these things tend to propagate downward from mill to gov, typically to phone or telecommunications environments, then to usually financial mm-hmm. services, and then everybody mm-hmm. else jumps on board. We've seen that happen with pen testing. It's starting to happen with red teaming. Yeah.
1: You know, since you mentioned that, sorry for the digression here, but yeah. I think that's actually inverting at this yeah. point. You know, with you, when you look at the folks that are really spending money mm-hmm. on cybersecurity, it, it's not really the government organizations that are doing it. They, yeah. they used to be really pushing the envelope, now it's the financial organizations yeah. Yeah. that are dumping yeah. a lot of money in to protect the financial transactions yeah. because of a lot of the credit card thefts and things that have been taking place. But so so yeah, digress, the finance
2: but. folks, and then also you could say you know, some of the, the, the high tech companies yeah. you know, yeah. out in Silicon Valley and such. They're, they're doing a lot of investment in certain aspects of cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are different players that are there. Mill is still doing a lot of work here though. I do, oh, yeah, I do a lot of work yeah. with our, our, <laughs> our friends in the military. Yeah, Gov, there's pockets of stuff that are moving fast and mm-hmm. stuff that's not. But but on the red teaming side though, specifically, what is red teaming? So a penetration test to differentiate the two. A pen test tends to involve mm-hmm. you know somebody trying to hack an organization, mm-hmm. find its flaws, with the goal of, well, securing against those flaws. Mm-hmm. And even more important than just securing the flaws, um, prioritizing res- resources. Right. To say, okay, w- we've got a certain amount of money we can spend on defense, our pen test has shown that it really hurts us here, we got a problem here, right. versus that one's not quite so important to us. So that, that's great, that's, mm-hmm. that's pen testing. Mm-hmm. Red teaming is a cousin of that. I mean, they're, they're highly related to each right, other. Right. But red teaming is where somebody is specifically trying to model the activities of real world bad guys to do this is what real-world bad guys do. It's often done unannounced. Pen testing may or may not be announced, but mm-hmm. red teaming is usually not announced. Uh, and then you have a blue team, the defenders. Sometimes they call them hunt teams, mm-hmm. and their job is to see if they can discover when the, pen, when the red teamers are doing what they're doing mm-hmm. um, and find them and get them out of the network. So so red tends to be a little more scenario-driven, red mm-hmm. teaming, um, and trying to mimic certain actions of bad guys. Okay. Yeah.
1: And the blue guys don't get to sleep at all, do they?
2: <laughs> blue, blue never needs to sleep. In fact, there's one thing that I say. I uh, I, I had this really wonderful opportunity. It was, uh, it was about six months ago. And I had to brief, just a five-minute briefing, mm-hmm. um, 70 red teamers. And they were about to do this big exercise. It was a military exercise. So they're all in uniform. There's 400 blue teamers. There's 70 red teamers. And red team's job is to hack in there. And I'm supposed to tell them something that inspires them and motivates them. So uh, I stand up there. I'm a little nervous. you know, But good, friendly folks, mm-hmm. all red teamers. and. Uh, I said to him, I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm red. I'm an offensive guy. I've been doing that in my career for the last you know, 15 years. I, in fact, I say to him, I, I said, you know, if you cut me, I actually bleed red. That's how Sorry. red I am. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I don't want to do an experiment on that right now. because But so, so it kind of softened him up a little bit. And I said, but, but never lose sight of this. You as a red teamer, your job is not merely to hack in and find flaws. Your job as a red teamer is to make blue better. It's not just to be red and say, hey, look, I'm red. I hacked this. It's to make Blue better. Because we've got to make the world a safer place. Very good advice. Um, So, And they really seem to get that. And I said, so, so never lose sight of that. Um, if you're doing your red stuff just to be red and to show off, you're actually kind of doing a disservice. You, mm-hmm. you need to help Blue. And when Blue calls you and say, what did you do? I can't find you. I'm giving them some advice and say, well, that might tip the scales. Yeah, but if you're giving advice that's practical that they can apply not only to detecting you, the red team, mm-hmm. but also the real world bad guys, you've done a good thing. All right. It's so a I like it. When red learning. It is. It's all about learning, and it can go the other way too. When blue can tell red, hey, here's how we detected you, and you got to you know up your game because we could detect all attackers that did what you just did. Mm-hmm. Now you get this wonderful cycle, a virtuous cycle of red making blue better, blue making red better. Right. Oh, that's good.
1: Yeah, it's always you know the argument about competition makes us all better. If you right. if you if you're basically without competition, the tendency is you get a little lax in the right. the practices. But
2: you want to keep it friendly, you know. If if red's just in the face of blue and look, you you know you lost, you're, you're going down I, in a bad way. That that's mm-hmm. that's not good. Now some people talk about purple teaming. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression. I've not heard. I'm this not one, a big fan I mean. of it myself. I mean, look. I have I have many friends who who love this concept of purple team. Mm-hmm. What they say is you have red and blue work together, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm with you so far, but then you have some red people doing some blue stuff, some blue people doing red stuff. Okay, that that, that I think will make it suboptimal. Let Mm -hmm. red be red and let them be the best red they can be. Let blue be blue and be the best blue they can be. And then Mm -hmm. have them share ideas. And I think that's gonna give you more value there. Mm -hmm. Now look, I'm not against this idea of having red every once in a while play blue and vice versa, but pure play purple teaming I don't know if it sets up the um, the dynamic that we want. Anyway, yeah, I'm not... I'm not... A good
1: point. Well, and then, yeah. you know, as soon as you learn another skill, you're diluting yeah. the first set of skills. That's that kind does, of my, my you notion. You can't be an expert at everything.
2: Right, right. And, so there, there are certain people that can do both. Yeah. I, I made a decision in my career 10 years ago to go pure play offense why before that time i was doing offense and defense i loved it but the industry just got so big and so many different mm-hmm. things going on with you know digital forensics and and uh, you know pen testing and, and vulnerability ex and, and exploitation mm-hmm. that i said I, I can't keep it all in my head anymore i gotta i gotta focus and i focused on the offense i have friends who focus on the defense i respect that that's cool mm-hmm. and i like to work with them in this sort of red blue scenario mm-hmm.
1: yeah so what do you say to somebody that says I'm getting attacked every day. I don't need a red team teaching me how to defend myself.
2: Well, okay, fair enough. That's good. <laughs> so you're getting attacked every day that you know about because you're seeing them and you're defending. Yeah. But what are you missing? Right. What's, what's right. getting through your defenses? And that's what red can help you with. Yeah, so red point. can throw stuff at you that if you notice it right away, good, you've done well, you're doing good blue stuff. Mm-hmm. But. You know there's some tips and techniques that you can give so that red gets in, and then you want to make sure that you detect them once they get in. Mm-hmm. If you're blocking everything at your perimeter, if your tools are doing a great job there, and you see all of that and stop it, but then something gets in, you might not see that. Red can help you see that, right. Or make sure that you're seeing it. So red kind of gives you an objective measure um, that the bad guys that you see can't necessarily do.: A
1: right? mm-hmm. good point, good point. So tell us, how how do you recommend setting up a red team operation?
2: Well, there's a lot of different ways that you can can set it up. Um, I do recommend that you have uh, some sort of project manager over it. It can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, I like when we we do this kind of red team or even a pen test project. We we work in pairs. You know, having sort of a lone ranger just out there, him or herself, that can be tough. You might miss something. Even Mm -hmm. just sort of brainstorming with somebody. Just saying, hey, here's what I'm seeing have you seen something like this? So, so if there's enough resources I'll put two people mm-hmm. on the project.
1: Yeah, you know two people are always better than exactly. one, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: And, it, and if there's not enough resources what I might do is say I've, I've got enough to put uh, for this project I got maybe 80 hours over two weeks, right? So that's, that's one person two weeks. What I might do is have one work person work on it for 70 hours mm-hmm. and another for 10. And then they're just kind of bouncing ideas off each other over those 10 hours. In fact, that's the role that I often play with with some of the folks on my team. Mm -hmm. I'll deploy a guy who's out there on site doing the project day to day. He calls me and we spend an hour or two a day on the phone talking about what he's seeing, brainstorming about what he should try next. Makes, makes for a better project mm-hmm. um, if if you've got the resources. I, I really right. recommend you do two people. Okay, and then you know some recommendations, just sort of a bare minimum for a standard pen test. Not even all the fancy red team stuff we're talking about, but just a, a, a bare bones pen test. I recommend at least a day for reconnaissance. You need to understand what the organization is about.
1: Well, right? and, and the real bad guys are going to have. Months, days, yeah. weeks, or yeah, months. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So.
2: Exactly. So if, if, if we're trying to mimic what the real bad guys doing, and, and you're just thrown into this organization, it's it's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to have at least a day for my scanning phase because I'm, I'm mapping the attack surface. But if it's a big environment, it might take longer mm-hmm. to, to do that. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of the bare bones. I'd like to have at least two days of actually outright trying to hack my way in. right? Mm-hmm. Battle in, maybe, maybe this involves uh, spear phishing emails, maybe it involves right. web exploitation. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of different things that could be included here. And then, you know, everybody's favorite topic, report writing. You've got to allocate time for that. One of the tricks that I've found that, that helps with report writing is don't wait until the end. Yeah. 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 So, so what I try to do is when I'm, I'm working on a, a pen test is every day to write a page or two of my report. Mm-hmm. So if the test itself maybe lasts over five or eight days, something like that, I'm writing a couple pages every day so that I get it at the end I've got, you know, the basic workings of my report. I found not only does that make life worth living, right, it's not so mm-hmm. painful, right. but it, I get actual better results. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever been working on a report after the technical part of the project's done and you notice something in your analysis on the report, say, oh man! If, if only if I, I tried this. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: that's absolutely. And, true. and
2: you can't the, that technical part's done. You can't try that. Yeah. So what, you got to write in your report. Hey, next time you do this, try that. You mm-hmm. know. Um, but if you're working on the report while you're doing it, you have that opportunity. Right.
1: Yeah. I found that writing documentation is is actually inspires the thinking process. And so I think that's yeah.
0: basically what you're alluding yeah. to there. For me, it's always been if I don't write while I'm doing it, I'll go back to my notes. I'll be like. What the heck did that mean? Yeah, what was true. I trying yeah. to say here? Yeah, that's yeah.
1: Yeah, true. So. You know, one of the things that we've done, and, and perhaps this doesn't really fit, well, it might fit into a, a red teaming environment, particularly if you have a large team or have a number of folks working on it, is we've set up a collaboration environment for the analysts yeah. so that um, it allows more ad hoc type things. And you know, one of my big things, and this, again, getting off on a wild tangent here, but it gets that, those collaborations out of email, yeah. which is perhaps right. the least secure way to sure, communicate. Sure, it sticks forever. Things, and so, yeah, things, exactly. It goes in all kinds yeah. of systems and things. So.
2: Chat. There's nothing like good old-fashioned yeah, chat, good right? Yeah, good old-fashioned uh, chat. With that's obviously a yeah. strongly encrypted session. Yeah.
1: The one yeah. the one, the one issue with chat is it is somewhat volatile. That is, you tend right. to lose the history of it in there. But that's, right. uh, I guess back to your point, document as you go along so that you get a good handle on what types of things uh, are going along and use it as a part of your thought process. Yeah, so
2: collaboration, documentation, those will make you better at doing this stuff. It Mm -hmm. also makes it more fun to do, honestly. Yeah, I I know the report writing, it doesn't sound like it'll make it more fun, but spreading that report out over time, as -hmm. opposed to writing it all at the end, that actually makes it more fun. Yeah. You know,
1: one question that kind of comes to mind, um, you know, are, are there, do you recommend any boundaries or rules around it? Yes. I, I, I have to think about this scenario where you go to somebody and say, you know, we think we really need to do some uh, testing on your system here, and they say, oh, no, you can't do that. You might break something.
2: Right. So, exactly. So, so I, I do hear that myself, and they say, well, you know, do you have the same agreement with the bad guys? Yeah. Because wouldn't that be nice? Uh, <laughs> please don't hack us, because you might actually get in and yeah. break something. So I, I think there needs to be a, you know, a, a strong business driver to say, look, mm-hmm. we, we need to see what happens when real world offensive skills are applied mm-hmm. to this. How do we hold up? And I think you can make a, a good you know, business argument for that. Mm-hmm. And if, if somebody still doesn't believe that, right? If they say, well, I don't want you to do a pen test or a red team exercise. And, and I've worked with organizations where they say, we don't want that. Mm-hmm. What we tend to focus on is, okay, let us do some hunting in your environment to see where you're already owned and usually they are, mm-hmm. right? They know, they, they've got visibility into where they're blocking the bad guys, but we start looking around on the internal system, say, you know, one got through here, one got through there. Spending a little bit of time and a little bit of money finding where mm-hmm. you already got owned can then help you justify the next, say, penetration. So test you structure.
1: can use a passive approach to help just find some nuggets of information that suggests maybe a more active approach would be
3: appropriate. Exactly. And
2: and what you might find, maybe the organization already knows because they've got an incident response team. They know where they already got hacked, Mm -hmm. but the level of sophistication of their attacker wasn't that high. They got lucky. Mm -hmm. So the bad guy got in, but he wasn't very good. They were detected. Incident response did its thing. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Okay, I want to use that, though, as an argument to say you're not always going to be so lucky that your adversary is unskilled. Yeah. Why don't we try to model something with a more skilled adversary, see how you do with that? And I find putting some metrics around this can kind mm-hmm. of help. Uh, I've, I've, I've heard of some organizations um, that are doing some really cutting-edge things with red teaming and blue teaming, I, and I get really excited about this. I think this is awesome. I admit right up front, this is not an inexpensive thing to do, but it'll really drive security. And mm-hmm. the, the concept is this. you got your blue team, the hunt team. They're, they're looking for the bad guys hacking in. And you give them a metric. We're going to have a red team try to hack us. We need to find them within two weeks. And they'll say, two weeks? Of course we'll find them within two weeks. Now you've got to give your red team a good scope. You're allowed mm-hmm. to attack these systems and you know, work in this way. And then you let the red team go. And if you have an average blue team, they're not going to find them in two weeks. Mm-hmm. So, so have you found them yet? No, no. Oh, okay, two weeks is done. Maybe we'll give you another now, week. Is right?
1: there a requirement that the red team actually has to do something in
2: that? <laughs> That's true. You have the tail. Yeah, <laughs> oh, <man>. yeah. <laughs> I think you do have to require that. That's a good point. So, so, so after you give them an extra week, so you haven't yeah. found them in three weeks, then the red team tips their hand. Mm-hmm. Say, okay, we're going to get a little more aggressive. We're going to do things that should be more noticed. Or we're even going to tell you what to look for right. because red's job is to make blue better. Mm-hmm. And then blue gets better. Let's say that blue consistently can find red within two weeks. Then you say, okay, we're going to lower it to one week. And we're going to let red change its tactics, because maybe you've just optimized your blue around the current tactics red was using, mm-hmm. and you can get this better and better. The thing I like about it from a management perspective is there's a time metric there. Right. So we discovered them within this time, and then blue is getting blue better. And then sometimes what you'll see is red throws some stuff at it, and blue's like, we totally found you instantly. Mm-hmm. Blue can then tell red how they're discovering them, and then red can get better. So both sides, driving. Right. Yeah. Now, a really important concept here, though, is red has to use techniques used by real-world bad guys. Right. If, if red's making up stuff that no real-world bad guy has ever used, you're not really helping drive security, mm-hmm. right? So, so you got to be anchored in, you know, by watching shows like this and, and reading sites uh, on the net about what the real-world bad guys are doing in all of these breaches.
0: Mm-hmm. What would you Good say point. is an example of a technique that real-world attackers would not use? What would be out of play?
2: you know what there's almost nothing that would be out of play that's a, and that's another little they've
1: gotten pretty darn clever yeah I mean, they, they have they, there was a time perhaps 10 years ago where you could say you know that we've never, never seen this. anybody yeah. do that and and you know i think in some cases now you've worked with dod mm-hmm. I, I i've worked with them as well and they're very close they had been very close mouth about some of the techniques that were right. being used now there's a significantly more sharing about you know look at this little trick they did it, right. you know it's almost like almost celebrating it now in some cases as opposed to, That's true. Your, you you yeah. know, not too long ago, it's like, wow, they did that for command and control? They used DNS as a back channel? for D- Or they, they were posting to Twitter or, you know, yeah, things right, like right. that. Right. So Everything
2: Everything's come in there. And I'm sorry I don't have an answer for your, your question because I could just picture one of your viewers saying, yeah. well, you know, actually the bad guys did this to me. So <laughs> it's, it's got to be contextualized yeah. to the environment you're operating in. For example, it might be that it doesn't make sense to do physical security, given how good it is around right. a given environment. But then, you know, I would never rule out physical security attacks against certain kinds of organizations. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's actually something, whenever I'm doing a penetration test or a red team exercise, it's, it's, it's a fun little thing. When, when you're doing this, occasionally, somebody on the other side, blue or you know, management, will say to you, well, that's just not fair. And, and in my head, whenever I hear somebody say, that's not fair, I think to myself, have I operated within my scope? Mm-hmm. Have I followed my rules of engagement? And am I doing something that I can say, you know, there's this other attack where this happened. I, mm-hmm. The same technique I just mm-hmm. used was used in another real world attack. If I can answer all of those three affirmatively, you know, real world stuff, operating in scope, operating in rules mm-hmm. of engagement. What that's not fair means, and I translate it in my head in real time, means, you have bested me. I'm very impressed with your skills. Can you please explain to me how you did this? So that's what <laughs> yes. that's not fair means. So you, when somebody says that, you don't get your back up. You just smile. Right. And say, oh, well, here, let me explain to you how that followed the scope, followed the rules of engagement, and here's how it maps to real-world attacks. Then we can work together, very good. red sharpening blue, vice versa, to figure out how to defend against it. Yeah, it's a very good so, response. Yeah, yeah. I, when, so I get all excited when I say that's not fair. That's not a bad yeah. thing at all. That's that's really good because now we're we're communicating.
1: I, I think the one thing that folks tend to think of as not fair is when you have knowledge of inside systems yeah. and that uh, yeah. that it gets used knowledge. as a part of it. Yeah, but you have to expect the fact that the, these attacks occur in stages as well. Right. That is. It, they may have had access to a place over here where they could have done reconnaissance over there or or looked up you know something about the personnel in the system or something like that. That's a tough so one. It is a tough one, and so that's part of what I was kind of hedging around yeah. with the setting up bounds. And you know, what is fair and what is not fair.
2: And what I'll do is when they say, you know, look, you had too much knowledge, we gave you too much, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because I ask for a network diagram. I like to know where I'm operating in the target environment. It's a safer way to do this work. Mm -hmm. Um, But then if I find something significant, they come back and say, well, it's because we gave you all that stuff. My response to that is I say, look, I'm trying to model what a real world bad guy would do in six months or two years. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do it in two weeks or three weeks or whatever the project scope is. Real world bad guys would have the time and often the resources to be able to, to get this information from this you. is true. And I, I, I don't think they, in their heart of hearts, would disagree with that. But verbally and on paper, they often say, nah, it's just, this was not fair. So you have to double down on your explanation of how yeah. a real world bad guy would achieve the same thing you did.
1: I think that's, that's true. It, 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 sorry for the interruption, no, but no. I, think, uh, I think you're really reinforcing a point. You know, again, even just a few years ago, folks probably would not have been convinced You couldn't sit down and tell them, you know, somebody's going to spend six months trying to get into your system. But some of the more recent attacks and some of the more recent statistics that have become available about, you know, persistent attacks, remaining persistent for 200 plus days, and in the meantime, having completely, basically ready access to any part of an enterprise really i think helps to solidify the opportunity to make a good
2: case also as a as a pen tester red teamer as an offensive person you need to be somewhat self-effacing if you Mm -hmm. go in there and say look i am so elite that i was able to hack into your environment you're actually telling them the wrong story about how they need to defend themselves because it's Mm -hmm. like well you came up with some one-off thing that that you have to be superhuman to do, why should I defend against that? You gotta go in there and say, look, I found this. This is standard practice on the offensive side, mm-hmm. and we need to talk together about how we can help you defend against it. Right. Um, so keeping the ego in check is important for, for red teamers, and then having this dialogue, this back and forth um, mm-hmm. discussion.
1: All right, very yeah. good. Anything else you wanna share with us about this before we move
2: on? Or? Well, so there's, there's one, one more point real quick, and that yeah. is, do you get in? Right, I mean, because we throw a whole bunch of stuff at a network and do you actually get in. Yeah. Um, I would strongly recommend that you always get in. Mm-hmm. It's like an easy thing to say. Well, of course, if, you know, I'm going to try to always get in. But actually to kind of tilt things so that you will get in. You know, some people call this assume compromise. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of you know, very advanced organizations with a real good security infrastructure saying, we want to see what happens if the bad guy gets in. So let's let the red team get in and see how fast that blue can find them. So, mm-hmm. so give the red team access from the very start. Now this sounds kind of weird to some people, a little, a little freaky, but you know, assume that an insider has done something evil, or a contractor has done something evil, or assume a user makes a mistake, you know, mm-hmm. please mm-hmm. click on this. And, 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 and don't debate, because I'm going to be able to trick at least somebody in your organization to click on it. So I'm going to send you some stuff, please click on it. Because I think you're modeling a more real world environment doing mm-hmm. that. So, do everything you can, if you're a penetration tester, to get access, but if you can't, you might want to talk with them about giving you access, and you write mm. that up, describe that, but then say, see if you can find me. I, I think it models uh, what we need to do more from a defensive perspective. Yeah.
1: So help me understand, so it, 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 it sounds like you're really alluding to the fact that a real attack occurs in stages, Right. and so you're saying, well, okay, this this part... Given enough time and resources, I think I can get past this point. Right. But if I don't, I have, the that, I, right, I don't right? have the time and resources. Right, I don't have the time and resources. So let's see what happens if they inevitably get into that point. And, you know, mm-hmm. you, you'd mentioned something about the you know click here. Or, you know, you can always get somebody to do something. I think I, I think Adam Rosso has been saying for years. Even a simple thing like a seatbelt law yeah. is only about 80% effective. Mm-hmm. That is, there's a law. You're going to get a ticket if you get pulled over without your seatbelt on. And there's still people who don't wear their seatbelts. About 20% right. of the people don't wear their seatbelts. And I think it's the same kind of scenario. And oddly enough, in the, some of the tests that we've done, it's statistically almost the same. Yeah. That is, yeah. and you do wow. a fishing exercise, and a, despite all the training that we you know, try to provide, it still seems like it's about 20%. Right. And so yeah. that, there's always that opportunity to get through that first threshold. It's just a matter of, Is that really worth the time and effort? Maybe it's that next stage that you really want to push on. I
2: like how you referred to it in those stages. So stage one, I might not be able to get in, but let's jump things forward to stage two so that you can detect how quickly you find me in stage two. Mm -hmm. There's huge value in that. And I see these really forward-thinking organizations doing these penetration tests or Mm -hmm. red teaming exercises in those stages because it makes the the whole security better, more measurable, more trustworthy.
1: Mm -hmm. Perhaps even a better emphasis on what an insider threat might look like True. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right, very good. Um, so at this point, how about uh, we, well, first of all, if somebody were want, wanted to actually practice some of this, sure. you know, yeah. perhaps they're new to it. I, I have to admit, I have not done a lot of red team work. Okay. So... uh, I still like you. (laughs) Well, thanks. I'm a blue team guy.
2: That's great. Blue and red working together.
1: So uh, what do you recommend if you want
2: to try to get into this and learn more about it? Well, there's a bunch of places you can go to practice your skills. Um, You want to make sure you're practicing with the appropriate permission. You don't want to start shooting exploits on a network uh, like your employer's network, bad news. (laughs) Um, but there, there are various places you can go and download uh, images so you can practice on your own. Mm-hmm. And there's something that my team and I have done for the last 11 years, um, and we call it the, the Holiday Hack Challenge, the SANS Holiday Hack, okay. we've heard it, referred to as that. And uh, what we do is every year, for 11 years now, we, uh, we build a little Christmas world, right? And so it's got a holiday theme, mm-hmm. and um, it's not just offensive, though. Some of them are offensive, you have to hack something. Mm-hmm. Some of them are defensive, you have to defend. Many of them are analytics, so we give you packet capture files and you have to look mm-hmm. for the attacks that happened. You know, a lot of people know about the holiday hack. Some people don't, but almost everybody I talk to about the holiday hack doesn't realize that we keep the old ones up. Mm. We, so they're still there. I mean, the 2014 holiday hack, the 13 hack, the 12 hack, the 11 hack, they're all up there so people can practice anytime. We give these oh. away for free. My whole team works on them. I remember back in the day, It would take like a hundred hours for us to write these things. Now it's hundreds and hundreds of hours. I mean, we stitch these things together. And, you know, we've got uh, last year's one was called A Christmas Hacking Carol. So there's uh, Scrooge, right? He's, 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 He's an evil hacker. He's done really bad things. And he just wants to watch the world burn. And he's visited by three ghosts. The ghost of hacking past, which is Alan Turing. The okay. Ghost of Hacking Present, which is Johnny Long, founders okay. of, of Hackers for Charity, okay. And uh, the Ghost of Hacking Future, which is, is sort of the Grim Reaper. And each of these ghosts presents to Scrooge a hacking challenge, and he's got to figure things out. But you get to hack into the same systems, and these systems are up, they're up right now. And we'll keep them up forever, as long as I can. So if you've never done, for example, a heart bleed attack, we've got a system online, you can Heartbleed it right now. Uh, Shellshock, you ever done that? We've got a system online. These are the ones that Alan Turing asks Scrooge to hack mm-hmm. and they're, they're available for you. Um, so we got all this kind of stuff. You have to do a social engineering of a bot that we created, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a fun one. So, so that one's up. Um, we have the one from 2013, it's called It's a Hackerful Life. So it's based <laughs> on It's a Wonderful Life. The bad guys try to hack into the critical infrastructure of Bedford Falls. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, George Bailey's kind of running things and it's the bad guys... Oxymoron,
1: but okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, <laughs>
2: and the bad guys fail. So they, they try to attack the water system. Right. They try to attack the train to derail it. They try, but it's using the industrial control systems in Cyber City. And we give you 148 megabyte packet capture file. Mm-hmm. And you have to analyze it to figure out why all the attacks failed, what are the defenses in there, just by looking at the packets. But one attack succeeded, the attack against the power grid causing a blackout. Mm-hmm. And you've got to figure out why that succeeded. So this is a very analytical blue one, right? We've got one called the Year Without a Santa Hack. It's a fun one, Grandma got all hack by a reindeer um, <laughs> so they, they have all these silly names and titles, but there's real world skills in them, and people can do this anytime they're, they're up at the yeah. uh, the SANS website you can download the stuff um, some of them actually have the systems on the internet that you can that you can hack into right. so and they're fun and quirky and weird and these the prizes have already been awarded for, mm-hmm. for the ones in the past, Perfect. right um, but we got another one coming up so
3: Good. Yeah. And when it, does it start? Like when, when do you be able so, to get, do yeah, the next so, one?
2: So what we do is, it used to be that my team would start writing it around Halloween. Not this year. This year we've got plans for this thing. It's going to be amazing. So um, we actually started in July of this year. So it's Christmas in July. right? I'm playing mm-hmm. Christmas music. We're thinking about Christmas. We're putting this thing together. <laughs> um, my team is still developing it now. I mean we're working super hard. And we release it, typically, the second week of December. Oh, okay. So second week of December, this thing will be put on the internet. Mm. There'll be a Christmas world with a whole scenario. The scenario's kept secret, right? Mm-hmm. It's under construction right now. Second week of December, we release it. People can work on it on their own you know, during the holidays, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you have an extra day or an extra week or whatever. You work on it. And then we ask for answers to be submitted when you finish. Or the final deadline is the first business Monday of January. Right, So you can maybe get a week off between the holidays or you get some extra time or things are quiet in the office. You submit those answers. We read them all. We get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of answers. We read them all and we choose a winner. And um, it used to be, if, if you won the holiday hack, you got a copy of my book. And we'll autograph it and tell you how wonderful you are, but the book is, you know, about $50. You can probably find it for less than that if you shop around. Mm-hmm. Last year, Sands very kindly sponsored it and gave us um, a free class that we could give away. So it's a SANS oh, on-demand class, um, and they're doing that again this year. So the grand prize is a SANS class. It's like five thousand dollars, right? Good. So we went from fifty dollars to five thousand dollars in value, and we get a lot of people that are playing this. But this year's, you want to you want to hear a little bit about the technology? Now? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So this year's. Um, now I can't I can't give you the details, right? It's top secret, right? But. Um, <laughs> So, so there's nobody listening. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Great. We got that going for us. Excellent. So I'm not going to tell you about the theme, but it's, it's going to be Internet of Things. Okay. Right. So you're going to have to analyze some Internet of Things stuff. It's going to be an Internet wide scavenger hunt. So we've got these things that we have put all over the Internet that are mm-hmm. well, doing things. Right. And uh, you are gonna have to find them. And then once you find them, you're going to have to hack them. So you're going to have to get into these things that we have distributed all around the world doing various interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll have to analyze what's going on there. And we're going to leave evidence on these things of a big plot, a nefarious plot. Bad guys are going to do bad things. You have to gather the evidence, do forensics analysis of it, and then do attribution to figure mm-hmm. out who the villain really is. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's, it's got a bunch of stuff in there. Internet of things. You're going to do firmware analysis. You're going to do wireless analysis. You're going to have to find these things on the net, do attribution. But we write them so that people with very little skills can play and get some stuff we write them so that people who are extremely skilled some of the best people in the industry they can have fun with this and get in depth so so if somebody's brand new you know and here's this saying oh my gosh firmware analysis i don't know we are in this year's going to have a very interesting hint system so that Hmm. you can get hints uh, about how to continue to move through so if somebody's new to this this is for you. If somebody's in really cool. sort of the middle of their skill set, this is for you. If somebody, you know, is amazing at their infosec, this is for you. Really, mm-hmm. we write it for everybody.
1: That's very um, neat. Yeah. And, and that's like, gotta well, take a lot of thought to be able to create something that fits a really broad
2: is. audience like yeah, that. So. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then the most fun part is stitching together the narrative with the technical stuff. So that we have, you know, kind of a fun, quirky kind of write-up right. of it, but, but the technology and story actually goes with it. We were having a debate just the other day in the office about you know this one aspect of of the story and how it matches the technology and how well that would never happen yeah but we're talking about this Christmas world with Santa Claus and all this kind of stuff and yet we're, we're sweating the details about would this ever happen technically right? Uh, yeah.
1: Alright it's very good you know it obviously you have a a very strong passion for what you do and um, you know I think it, it, I think it's unique it's, it, it's uh, and valuable. So you know, it's it's it's
2: an honor to be able to help people with this kind of stuff. That's that's what kind of keeps me going in my career. It's like how can right. we help people learn this stuff? And ultimately again, it gets back to that, you know, trying to make the world a more secure place. Mm-hmm. Right? So even when we write our red stuff, we're thinking about blue people and how to make the blue people better. Right. And then when we write these challenges, you'll see there's a big intermixture of red and blue skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well that's what we're all here for. So well, appreciate appreciate having you here. Matt, let's go to you. Let's talk a little bit about Fitbit. And uh, if I remember correctly, you're a little skeptical about where this could go, but mm-hmm. I guess we have to keep our eyes peeled for it. Sure, so. I, I'd
0: like to see how this, how this pans out. But yeah. um, there Tell was us more. A, so a researcher, uh, Axel April at hack.lu, which is in Luxembourg, did a talk on the Fitbit Flex, which is, based, this is it's what I'm wearing on my wrist right now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of those fitness tracks. So obviously you are not paranoid about this. Absolutely not. I'm just going <laughs> to put this over here. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really cool research. I think the, the news has latched onto a very specific part of it, but the whole the whole talk was about what can you do with this tracker besides what you would expect to do with this tracker. So she reverse engineered the protocol, which is using Bluetooth low energy and sending XML back and forth. It seems pretty simple. Uh, and she came up with some pretty interesting ways of using a tracker like this. The one that the news latched onto was that she was able to find a way to push data to the Fitbit and have it sort of echoed back, which you might consider that infection of a Fitbit device. Mm-hmm. So if I can put my own data on this and it comes back when somebody pings it, you know, you're basically infecting it. The, the trick, though, is that, is it malware? And is it something that if it gets pushed to another device, it's actually going to cause a problem? Now, mm-hmm. the space in which she was able to write this information is 17 bytes. So while well, the news is saying, you know, your Fitbit is now infected with malware, your Fitbit might be infected with 17 bytes of something. And whether or not when it ends up on that other machine, it's actually going to execute, like code has to execute. You know, malware can hide, mm-hmm. but can't, height but it must run I can't right. remember yeah. so but it has to run and that's that's right. where I think it hasn't quite happened yet no one has shown a demo that these 17 bytes can turn into something that will infect your laptop or go on to infect further Fitbits so while you're sharing data that's you know it's okay it's cool it's definitely good work I just skeptical as it, as to whether or not it's as big a deal as people think it is so
1: whereas on the media was kind of portraying this as a, a significant issue but obviously is something we need to pay attention to from a security community point of view
0: but it's, sure but that's the thing it's not really... like you've got going to have zeus on the fitbit anytime soon you don't have that kind of space you don't still have an infection vector that actually runs when it gets pushed out mm-hmm. now there's some other cool work that she did which i actually think i might avail myself of the, the code is up online where you can use the fitbit as sort of a presence detector so you plug your little usb dongle in and you put your flip fitbit on and you run her code and it tells when you've walked away from your computer because it'll lose the Bluetooth connection and then lock your computer automatically. So if you're forgetful, um, there's, there's been like commercial devices for this sort of thing, right. a little puck you keep in your pocket. Mm-hmm. If you're already wearing your Fitbit, why not? Um, she also played with the idea of using it as a pseudo-random number generator because your, your wrist is, you know, it's not as predictable as some other things. You might use it. Maybe if you'll, you need to get a random number. You'll shake it a bit. She said it's probably not that much worse than some other RNGs. It's not perfect. It's not Mm -hmm. robust or crypto strong. But if you need a random number generator for something silly like rolling dice, you might want to use it for that. So I think it's really cool because it's reverse engineering of a device that people carry around all the time to use it for other purposes. The, The malware part of it is also kind of cool. But I think for most people, you know, if they wanted to try it out, I think it'd be a lot of fun.
2: But, you know, it's an example of an Internet of Things thing, yep. and uh, there's, there's so much research to be done with all those technologies coming out. It's, uh, I, I think it's pretty exciting, and uh, the attack surface is so huge, uh, so I, I applaud efforts to try to research it and figure mm-hmm. out what's going on inside, and, and imagine when this thing becomes even more feature-rich, maybe mm-hmm. that space, this attack today that is 17 bytes, in the future you might be able to put some more significant data in there, you know, next generation.
1: right, true. Mm -hmm. Now you said a huge attack service, You're referring to lots of people using it. If I well, lots of people using it.
2: uh, That's one aspect of it. But also, as we deploy all these different Internet of Things things, Mm -hmm. webcams and thermostats and toys. Mm -hmm. um, You know, the Internet of toys. Right. There's a lot of toys coming on the shelves in the next couple months that allow for Internet access. They're cloud based. Mm -hmm. We did some penetration testing against some of these products and. it's exciting right yeah, so so there's gonna be a lot of them absolutely fitbit mm-hmm. now has got a big thing but but also just all the different things that you can attack on these products it's
1: right. a so, well the, the variety of things and the the opportunities behind that absolutely yeah. when i say opportunities i'm thinking in terms of um our opportunities to help protect those right. <laughs> yep they go hand in hand <laughs> so i'm, I'm job, all excited
2: right. about attacking them you're all excited about defending them yeah and that and ultimately we do have to, to push the level of security of these products up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So exploring the limits and, um, and the little 17 byte opportunities that are in there. It's only 17, 17 bytes, I'm going to put it back on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very good for bringing that, Matt. And uh, John, you've been kind of quiet here, so we're going to give you a chance to uh, talk Well, we had a good
3: bit. segue because we're talking yeah. about Internet of Things stuff here. So this is a story, and it's not a new story necessarily, although kind of a re-looking at something that's been going on. We've talked about this before. Um, there are a lot of these security camera DVRs, you know, these off-the-shelf ones that you can get from your stores, plug it in, hook all your cameras up to it. Um, a lot of them are not particularly, when people deploy them, they're internet accessible a lot of times, and the users who deploy these don't really know that. And they expose the administrative interface, usually with default credentials. So. Uh, This is a story from uh, Encapsula, and they were discussing that they were kind of defending against a customer of theirs who was getting DDoS. And when they kind of looked at who are these attackers, they realized these are all these security camera DVRs participating in this botnet Mm -hmm. as part of this attack. they did a little digging, and they said, oh, wow, look at this one. This one's close by. This is, you know, geographically. And they logged into the, you know, with the default credentials, looked at the camera. And it was the mall, one of the stores in the mall that was five miles away or something. Mm-hmm. So they decide, let's go over there. They talk to the people there at this store and uh, explain what was going on. And uh, they allowed them to look at that device and mm-hmm. figure out. And they were able to, to get the malware off of it. It happened to be a version of Bashlight, which we've talked about before on the program. Mm-hmm. It also goes by the name of Light Hydra, A-I-D-R-A, um, which is kind of a, a toolkit. You can get it out on the internet. I guess it's like a MIPS or, uh, I forget what. I think it's MIPS uh, processor. Yeah, I think it's a MIPS based, uh, or ARM, something like that, Uh, source code. If
0: it's C source code, you'll be able to compile it for any platform. Right, good point.
3: Anyhow, um, so uh, kind of just the story of that these are out there. I know we've talked about this uh, in general, that there are a lot of security camera DVRs that participate in these. We've also seen home routers, network Mm -hmm. attached storage devices. You know, Wi-Fi access points, all kinds of devices that people put on the network, and they don't realize they're exposing an admin interface like through Telnet. Um, also, they notice that these devices are heavily scanning for Telnet. So they have a mm-hmm. nice list of default passwords, and once they, once, the, once they infect the device, that device starts scanning for more devices. So it kind of has a worm type of behavior there, um, which probably feeds into the internet weather uh, report where we see port 23 TCP, usually at the top in terms of the uh, mm-hmm. number of scan sources that we see. We will be looking at that. Um, so just an uh, advisory to people. We've talked about this before, but you know, make sure you, know, you understand when you put these devices on your network, whether they are exposing ports and services from the Internet-facing side, mm-hmm. um, and if so, what they are and whether they need to be exposed. Chances are they don't. Uh, and don't leave the default passwords on there because right. uh, a lot of these devices they just come with some default password of admin admin or something like that and Don't leave that
2: as a default password. Yeah, yeah there's, there's an interesting angle on that one So so they detected that this attack was coming locally, right or from nearby Right one of the right. sources. And right then, and then they kind of looked that up and they connected to it and looked through the eye of the camera, right? I don't know you know, if standard incident response procedures right. should involve uh, <laughs> using default credentials to start looking at the cameras of other people. That's a little scary. And how did that conversation go? Hey, you know, we discovered that your camera was attacking us, so we logged in and looked around, and we, we saw where you were, so we've come in. That's got to be an awkward. Conversation. Yeah, yeah. A little yeah we spooky, we looked in there right. and
1: saw you were cooking the books. <laughs>
2: <it>. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what
1: was Kevin point of
2: that? That's got to be very freaky. So, so obviously defending your cameras, as you point out, that's good and important. But I don't know, from an incident handling perspective, if we should take the lesson yeah, of logging into that stuff. That's right. probably yeah. not
1: a good practice. Two wrongs don't make a right
2: necessarily. Right. right. Yeah. You were hacking right. me, so I got no. I don't think it works that way. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. But the, uh, I mean, it is in fact a, a situation that exists here. And, you know, it's interesting the statistic they provided, I'm not sure where they got this number, but 245 million surveillance cameras.
3: Oh, right. It, so they, yeah, they quoted a statistic it, that there are about 245 million professionally installed right. security camera systems out there. And then there's probably millions of other ones that people have just installed themselves. So, right. you know, as a, a piece of advice, probably maybe this is where you're going. If you're going to install a security camera DVR system for your your small business or whatnot, you might want to go with someone reputable to come in and install it, as opposed to just going down to the local computer store, getting something, plugging it in. And if you know what you're that doing, you right. that's
1: one thing. Right. But uh, if you're not comfortable with uh, with, I mean, those are computer systems, and if mm-hmm. you're not comfortable administering a computer system, you really need to have a professional do that for you. Right. So uh, it's a relatively small proportion of these, that uh, at least that we've witnessed as a part of these bot- botnets, but um, it's still a significant number. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Right. they add up. Yeah. So a good segue, John. We'll talk a little bit about the uh, internet weather here. And first item on the list is uh, scan sources on port 161 UDP, uh, that's SNMP. Now we've been seeing off and on Activity to try to use SNMP as a reflective denial of service attack vector. Mm-hmm. And uh, curiously, this is a case where um, we saw what I describe as a sizable botnet up in the round of, you know more than 10,000, less than 20,000 sources scanning on port 161, they're likely looking for devices that will respond to SNMP with the objective of being able to use those in a reflective denial of service attack. So uh, we saw this sort of activity and um, we were investigating this a little bit more and it it turns out that it appears that these are cases where they have, a lot of cases, air router, small office, home office routers with uh, SSH exposed port 22. Yes, SSH. And, uh, or their web interface in some cases uh, which use the yep, same that's true, passwords. With uh, a lot of <laughs> default, uh, password, default passwords. And so the infection vector for these is uh, apparently obvious and it's a matter of, again, being used in uh, most likely to be used in denial of service attacks. Yeah, and I don't know if that's a default. I don't really know much about that hardware platform, but
3: it's one of those things where, you know, I'm not sure if the user when they deployed that did they say allow people on the internet to manage this most of these devices have that as a checkbox yeah uh, and i don't know what the default is there but there's a, a fair number of them out there that are set up
1: Well way. it was interesting because it did we did find some heavy concentrations and so one of the things i was wondering is if perhaps these devices were being provided by some local ISPs because there's a really heavy concentration in Germany Thailand and the Philippines and, you know, there are obviously some devices that are infected in other places, so there's a possibility that perhaps as a feature or an option of uh, the ISPs, they say, well, we'll uh, give right, you a Wi-Fi router or something it. to go with it. So, And perhaps aren't installing that correctly in the deployment. I, I'm speculating on that aspect of this, but there certainly were some, what I would describe as unusual concentrations in the, uh, in the infected devices here. In any case, um, if you see activity on port 161, or have those exposed, or actually even have uh, SSH exposed to the internet, web interface exposed to the internet. Uh, Make sure you're not using weak passwords. How many times can we, can yes. we say that, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, next item here is scan probes on port 502 TCP. And uh, this is associated with Modbus. And, and Ed, you were making a comment earlier that it's yeah. a, almost an insult to call it a protocol, right? Yeah, that's,
2: that's <laughs> a, it's a quote from a, a guy on my team, Josh Wright. Calling Modbus a protocol is an insult to other protocols. This is so simple. There's not a whole yeah. lot going on with it. Right. But it controls important things. Right, right? and industrial that's, control a, and that's right? the
1: significance. It tends to be associated with um, control of industrial systems, where you might be turning through things on or turning things off, perhaps monitoring the status of the systems. And uh, so this is one that's probably worth paying attention to, particularly if you're in a manufacturing uh, industry or or have uh, systems that are being monitored associated with industrial systems. Now, you'll see that there are basically two phases in activity that we're seeing here. This is looking at the last 60 days or so. These spikes that are relatively consistently timed on the left are probably not worth being too terribly concerned about. There are also some little blocks of activity that are down here. Those are even not necessarily as uh, concerning. The more recent activity, which is a little more, I'll say, inconsistent in the activity, is probably the uh, part that I'd like to emphasize here. And most of the sources that are doing this activity, by the way, what we're looking at are the number of sources, and this is only in hundreds. It's not significant numbers. I haven't shown the number of probes here, but the number of sources will generally correlate with the number of probes that you see unless somebody's trying to hide their activity by using more addresses and kind of doing it sort of low and slow. And this is in fact the case that we're seeing. So most of those sources are in China. Most of these probes are actually from a U.S. university, so I'm more comfortable with the U.S. university. They're known for doing security research activities that isn't the part that's really concerning me. It's more the uh, these other probing activities that are taking place that, from China, where the uh, again we're observing the increase in the number of sources doing that. And that's what's actually graphed here. Looking at the top 10 most probed ports, we did see a couple of ports that changed significantly. We're going to take a little closer look at that. And port 23 is at the top of the list, followed by 1900 UDP. We talked a little bit about reflective denial of service attacks. That's another vector using that. We'll take a little closer look at that as well. Followed by port 22 TCP, we talked about that the SSH, perhaps trying to do some recruiting activity on those uh, air router devices. 1433 TCP, that's Microsoft SQL database. Uh, perhaps, again, you're trying to look for uh, machines with weak credentials. 443 TCP, that's uh, you know encrypted web, It's L protected. 445 TCP, that's uh, Microsoft file sharing, 80 TCP web. And then followed by, again, the ports 21 TCP and 993 TCP. We'll take a little closer look at those. Looking at scan probes on port 23 TCP is Telnet, Since our report last week, it's actually gone down a little bit. And then if we were kind of looking at it, you know, flat across the last uh, 90 days or so here, we see we're at about the same level we had seen about 90 days ago. But I still kind of feel an increasing trend in this activity overall. So while we've got tens of thousands of sources, they're geographically distributed. Many of the sources in the United States, a lot of them associated with residential or small businesses, really kind of pointing to those uh, closed-circuit TV cases that we were, John, you were just talking about
2: I if, minutes ago. If there were a time traveler from, say, 10, 15, or 20 years ago, and we were to say, you know, one of the biggest ports that's getting scanned is TCP 23 Telnet, <laughs> they, <I> mean, they, <laughs> they would said, that. That is not, that has not gone away yet. 2015, you people are crazy. Oh, and it's on webcams in people's houses and shopping malls. Right. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, they, you know, and then, you know, I attribute this, and this is not, this is my speculation. We haven't really studied this. You may be familiar, Ed, with the uh, there are some initiatives that are underway. I think uh, Underwriter Labs is Mm -hmm. taking an initiative to try to create sort of safety rules for things that connect to the internet. I think it's a really good uh, good idea. There are a couple of other initiatives along the same lines that are uh, coming about, and it's really kind of basic things. You know, most all of these devices are built around a couple of basic microprocessor Mm -hmm. structures or architectures, and if you go to a Place where they develop, sell development kits. They basically provide a standard Linux <coughs> install sure. with all these services exposed. And rather than starting with a sort of a locked-down version of it, and these devices are created on the cheap. They're you know they're intended to be as low-cost as possible. And you know doing security testing would increase those costs. So what they're really trying to do here, uh, what would uh, actually, in my opinion, be a Im- big improvement is if the Emulator packages, the development platform started out with a more locked down system. Yeah. How many of them really need Telnet? It's just right. it's just a bad habit that, that yeah. it exists in those. I so, agree
2: 100%. Absolutely.
1: Uh, looking at scan probes on port 1900 UDP, again, this is simple service discovery protocol. It doesn't really have any purpose on the internet, but some of these devices have that exposed because it just, it's. It's turned on, and they haven't discriminated between the LAN side and the WAN side. What we're seeing is uh, actually an increase in the number of probes that is attempts to request services from those, oftentimes on the request side of uh, reflective denial-of-service attacks. So uh, that activity seems to be continuing, and... um, I think for the most part, you know, some things have been done on the network to try to damper a lot of this activity, so I think these, a lot of these requests are basically going to DevNull at this point, uh, attempts to try to build that, uh, that back up. Next item here is scan probes on port 993-TCP, that's IMAP over TLS, you know, basically an encrypted email access. The large spikes here that we're seeing are actually from a university, those are not a significant concern, in fact, the smaller spikes themselves are also from yet another security research organization, uh, a private organization. So even though these spikes are rather big and we're, we're seeing them rather frequently, I'm, I'm gonna say they're relatively innocuous. Basically what these folks are doing are trying to identify weak access points. In fact, I think this uh, originated or started in the wake of the Heartbleed hmm. vulnerability discovery that is to identify one of these where organizations may not be thinking, oh yeah, I have to check the email gateway as well as the web servers. John, you had made a big point about that around the Well, Heartbleed yeah, back times. when it's we like, first well, What about discovered those it? other things that are using OpenSSL? Yeah. Or Tor. Tor was another one.
3: I mean, Tor I, used Tor. SSL. They also, there were a bunch of Tor servers that had Heartbleed exposure.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, next item, scan probes on port 21, TCP, that's FTP. Uh, We're showing 90 days of activity here. And this is less consistent, but again, a U.S. university that uh, appears to be doing research activities and uh, is you know, well attributed with uh, performing security research activities. So I'm going to put this in the category of innocuous activity. But since you might observe it on your network,
0: uh, I wanted to make sure that you were aware of it. You know, that's, that's something I was just thinking about while we are here. We keep saying that there are organizations who are innocuous and we trust them. But I'm aware of some, some groups that are doing this sort of large scale scanning for the internet. Mm-hmm. And they share the data. Mm-hmm. is is sharing the results of a, a, a worldwide internet scan the same as having a bad guy who's able to perform the same scans. Right. They just don't have to do bad the scanning. They just have to have to download the it. scanning.
3: It's well, that it's a
1: good I mean that that becomes the yet another topic about um, you know what would be what's appropriate use of the data and doing the scanning activity. And um, I'm going to step away from that for the moment. <laughs> Fair enough. Interesting point, I'm, yeah. I'm personally not a big supporter of it. I think that um, we should leave the reconnaissance to the folks that need to do that reconnaissance. We have the folks that are have, own the systems, do the testing of those systems. If they want to remain at risk, that's their business. There are other opinions on that matter as well. So we should we should have somebody that can play counter argument in order to have that discussion. <laughs> Uh, Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing port 23 is far and above and I actually don't even have a follow-up on this particular one in terms of a graph and the reason why is because I looked at it and it just was boring it was kind of flat from last week so that's been uh, staying relatively steady followed by uh, port 445 TCP again uh, there's still configure stuff out there but we've also seen an increase in activity that appears to be sort of a resurgence so they kind of Kind of looking like Configer, but not really. So uh, that's uh, that continues out there. Followed by port twenty two TCP. We talked about the SSH scanning activity, and we have some other uh, PDP activity uh, taking place as well that's showing up. That's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. and you can find AT&T Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes and uh, and basically, an iPod form. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security, and Ed, you also have a Twitter handle.
2: Sure, it's it's just Ed SCOTUS. One word: E D S K O U D I S.
1: Pretty straightforward. So uh, I'm sure Ed would like to hear from you as well. I'd like to thank you, Ed, for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Was, thank uh, you. It was a really terrific conversation, and, and a topic that we really haven't talked about mm-hmm. on the program before. So well, I had I a great really time. Really appreciate you bringing. Thank it you
2: for us. your for your hospitality.
1: Our pleasure. Thank you, John. Yep. Thanks, Matt. Hey, I'm man. Brian Rexroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. All right. Cool. All right.
0: Good. All
1: right. Wow.
3: Good we, never, we don't usually get applause. <laughs>
1: <it gets. laughs> I have no, <laughs> we don't. That, that must really have been cool. for you. <laughs>
0: The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views
1: of AT&T or any other person or entity.